They buried me in the water and I came out new. Ha <laughs> ha! Now I'm baptized in blood. What's up, Sheepdog? Welcome to the Changing the Culture podcast. That was my boy at One Time Music. Go look him up on all the socials, Instagram. You can go find all of his music. That song is called Baptized in Blue. You're going to be able to listen to that at the end of this podcast episode. I hope you enjoy this episode and I hope you enjoy One Time's music. He's a fellow police officer. He's the man. I love this guy. Go listen to his shit. Jason, I'm so excited to have you on the Changing the Culture podcast. Can you please introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about you? I can. Thank you so very much. I am, uh, my name is Jason Checkerly, and I appreciate you having me on, Autumn. I'm uh, currently living in Phoenix, Arizona, born and raised here. I've uh, been living here a, a long time. Uh, happy to, uh, coming up on 50 years. So, um, and you know my story is pretty simple. I was, uh, I was pretty young. Wanted to be a police officer, and uh, ended up doing a short, short little visit to college. I call it to to play golf, and decided I needed a little structure and discipline in my life to get to where I want. I needed to go, and so I joined the Air Force and spent four great years, traveled around, did a lot of great things. And it did exactly what I needed it to do. Mm-hmm. And I came home, I uh, got married, had a couple of kids. Uh, you know, just the life was just kind of going exactly according to plan, right? No problems, no adversity. Uh, took me a little while to get on with the police department because, uh, you know, it's, a, it's not one of those jobs you just throw your application on a desk and they're going to take you as it should be. It's, mm-hmm. it's pretty difficult. And I actually had uh, tried and failed several times with a few different departments. I always wanted to work in Phoenix because it's where I was born and raised. It's a big city. And uh, I put it out of my mind uh, at one point. And I, you know, I had a responsibility with my family. And I went and got a great job with uh, one of our electrical companies out here. And... Um, then things uh, greatly changed in March of 1999. What happened? Well, I, uh, so the last time that I had tested for the police department was 1996. And I was doing really well, enjoying my other job. And on March 26th of 1999, I came home from work. I turned on the 5 o'clock news, and the lead story was – Phoenix police officer Mark Atkinson had just been shot and killed in the line of duty. Mm. And I still remember it so clear. Uh, More than 21 years later, I just uh, knew right then and there that that was the job that I was supposed to be doing. It it really is a calling. And so I went the very next day and applied again with Phoenix. And this time, magically, I just sailed. Right through the process. I mean, it's so long, you know, it's yeah, oh, yeah. 
three months. It's a grueling process. And I was hired. I started the academy in September of 1999 and was the first graduating class of 2000. Wow. Wow. So you went, you went through, I mean, it, it sounds like you went through a journey far before becoming a police officer. How old were you when you became a police officer? I was 26. 26. It's yeah. interesting because now a lot of officers are getting in at like 21. You know, I still teach at our academy mm-hmm. and I'll go down there and there'll be one or two kids in there who are 20, going to turn 21 in the academy. And it just, it leaves me speechless. I'm like, I, I don't know how you do it. I could have never done this job at 20. And then you'll also have a gentleman or a woman in there who's in their mid to late forties and it's their yeah. second career. And I, you know, I have incredible respect for people who move on to law enforcement, but I also think they're a little more prepared with life experience. Again, at 21 years old, man, yeah. once, once you graduate the Academy, once you get off of what we call the officer training program, which is in Phoenix, it's three months. I mean, that's you in a car with a badge, a gun, and a whole lot of power and responsibility that has to be contained in a bubble of humility mm-hmm. and honor. And mm-hmm. I, I just, ah, I don't, I don't get how twenty. I, good, I, I respect everyone out there. If you do it at that age, mm-hmm. I would have just never been able to do it. Yep. I went, I went in pretty young, but I got to tell you, I totally understand. I, I wasn't working the road at 20 or 21. Right. Um, I actually, I, I took a job as um, like, it's a transport deputy and mm-hmm. like court security. Do you guys have that down there? No, I mean, we have a transit authority that handles oh. like light rail and, and stuff. Uh, but no, the, the cops kind of do uh, everything, unfortunately. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Well, so, okay. So tell us a little bit, I want to hear about your career. So what happened? Well, uh, you know, it was definitely the right choice. I mean, when, when you know, it's a calling, it's (laughs) it's pretty awesome feeling. And I love the Academy, made my best friends in that Academy. Uh, just couldn't wait to get out there, hit the streets. And it was, you know, everything that I had fantasized or dreamt about is a hundred times more than what I thought it was going to be. There's mm. just nothing like being a beat officer, especially in you know a city that you love and you know, and uh, working the night shift, loving it. Uh, did my year on probation successfully, and yep. then got off of that. And I, my best friend from the academy, he had previously been an officer in Ohio for about six years. So I, in some ways, I looked up to him, just like you know, he's a little more squared away than most, and. Uh, we wanted to be partners. So after getting out of probation, we were lucky enough to transfer to a different squad, better hours, better days off. And uh, I just can't even begin to tell you looking back how good life was. I mean, I was 28 years old, uh, had a wife, two kids. Uh, all four of my grandparents were still alive and married. My parents are healthy and happily married. I've got the job I love so much. Uh, just 28 years on this earth, I had never even experienced a death in my family. Wow. And, uh, you know, every day was just, I couldn't wait to go to work. And, you know, you, it's easy to take things for granted, uh, very much so. So, ironically enough, went to work on March 26, 2001, two years to the day after Mark Jackson was killed. Wow. 
on his anniversary. Yeah. And we were short staffed that day. So my partner and I were told by our supervisor that we couldn't ride together. We had to be in separate cars to cover our patrol zones. And I remember I left the precinct after briefing and, uh, before I went, you know, I don't know what you guys call it in Maine, but in Phoenix, when you're in service, you call it 10-8. Yep, and, same. Okay, so before telling dispatch, I was 10-8. Uh, against policy, against procedure, I didn't care. I left my precinct, and I drove over to Maryville Precinct to the marker where Mark Axon was shot and killed, his memorial marker. And I just pulled up next to it. I rolled down the window. I made the sign of the cross. I thanked him. Mm-hmm. For service and sacrifice and I thanked him for giving me the opportunity to be where I was and then I went 10-8 having no ideas and in about eight hours I was going to come very very close to needing my own memorial marker I went through through a very I always say this and it's the dumbest term quiet routine day cops say it all the time but there's no such thing but it really was a boring day i Went on a couple of minor car accident calls, took a couple of paper report calls. There wasn't anything going on. And I was working a 3 p.m. to 1 a.m. shift. So about 11.30 p.m., you know, that's kind of the fun time of the night where work shift is out. They're taking the radio calls. You could go out and look for your own, do your on-view work, have a little fun. And mm-hmm. uh, uh, emergency call came on of an unknown trouble. And it wasn't in my area of responsibility, so – it went in one ear and out the other. But the officers in that area were busy at the time. So a few seconds later, the dispatcher came back on. She said, I'm in trouble, found dead body in an apartment with a lot of blood. Sounded like a violent crime being committed. And just a brief few more seconds went by. Nobody was answering it. I wasn't doing anything. So I grabbed the radio and I said, I'll head that direction. And I had quite a, quite a ways to travel because it was out of my patrol area. Uh, as well as being an emergency call. So I was running code three. Mm-hmm. I was going down a road in Phoenix called Thomas road. And uh, it's about five minutes east of downtown Phoenix, very busy part of the Valley. I, I came to an intersection where one of the freeway overpasses is uh, Phoenix children's hospital, Arizona heart Institute, just a, a kind of a busy area. And as I approached the light, my light was red. So even though I'm running code three, you know, you got to come to a complete stop and make sure that people getting on the freeway will yield to my emergency vehicle. And what is, it only takes a second and a half to clear an intersection. Mm-hmm. But just as I was going to proceed, my patrol car was struck from behind by a taxi cab and the driver was suffering an epileptic seizure at the time. Oh. And according, according to the investigation, he was doing 115 miles an hour when you're in Indy. Oh my goodness. Yeah. And the only thing I can imagine, you know, he's in the middle of a grand mall seizure, completely locked up. And he probably, by the time he got to me, he was probably attracted to my overhead lights. When you're in a seizure, that tends to happen. And then he just drifted over and hit me right from behind. I don't remember. I never saw him coming. I have no memory of the impact. I was knocked unconscious. My car burst into flames. Traveled 270 feet through the intersection. And then started so the first of so many miracles. I came to rest 50 feet in front of a fire truck. Wow. They were 
they were sitting there on their way to the same call that I was going to. Oh, wow. And, you know, I give them a lot of credit because a lot of times as first responders, you know, we have and a shout out to any of the dispatchers out there. My God, my heart. I, mm-hmm. I love dispatchers more than anybody in this world. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. But, you know, usually when you're on your way to a call, you have at least a little bit of info. Mm-hmm. Shots fired, man with a gun, domestic violence, car accident, 962, whatever. Here's this crew in a fire truck on their way to a dead body call. And they pull it to an intersection and the world literally explodes right in front of them. And then they see it's a police car. And, you know, I don't care what anybody says. There's a certain police and fire like to have their jokes and they have their little, little battles. But there, there's something, uh, there's a fierce camaraderie. I mean, yes. I've been in the military, yes. but there's nothing like the way police and fire will have their backs, each other's backs in the time of need. And, you know, I've always thought over the years, I can't imagine what they must have thought. Not only like, oh, my God. The, there's a car fire, but then when they saw it's a police car and how they went about their business and uh, went to work right away, you know, they've all got out of the four of them, they had very specific individual jobs. You got the captain trying to give incident details, trying to get more units on scene, the engineers getting her truck prepped, getting the hoses out. One of the firefighters trying to battle the blaze, trying to shoot pure oxygen across my face. And I'm sitting trapped in my seatbelt uh, in the, and they, they said the fire was so big, it was licking the bottom of the overpass, the freeway. Wow. It, was, it was a pretty huge fire. And uh, they had a rookie uh, talking about young people, 22 year old kid, uh, a booter. And the, he was given the grim task of getting me out of the car. And as he approached my window, he thought, you know, he said out loud, he's like, this guy's dead. Oh he, no! He broke my window with his axe, and I reached out as if to grab the roof of the car. <laughs> he said it scared the hell out of him. Oh but even unconsciously, you know, I think you'll try and do things to help yourself. And uh, he's wearing his turnout gear, his gloves. He doesn't have a knife, and I'm just stuck in this in this car. And uh, another miracle: two very good friends of mine, two police officers. They were about a half mile away from the scene. They heard the impact. They saw the fire. And they got there in about 30 seconds, having no idea what they're rolling up on. Then they see it's a police car. Can you imagine the flood of emotions? Mm. I mean, who, who is, that's one of my friends yeah. who's dying in there. And I don't care what uniform we're wearing or what we're doing. Fight or flight syndrome is very real. Yes. All. And they, as they got out of their car, they heard the firefighter screaming, I need a knife. So one of the officers ran up and he cut my seatbelt and I'm six foot three. So I got long legs, size 13 boots. And as he and the firefighter were pulling me out of my driver's side window, my long legs and boots got stuck underneath the steering wheel and dashboard. And this mm-hmm. other police officer wearing just a short sleeve, polyester uniform, crawled into the cab of the car, into the fire, to help get my legs free. And oh my God. He, you know, he, he escaped injury. It's amazing what you can do. Uh, when you got that adrenaline flowing and, and when you just jump into action. But from the time I was hit till the time I was out of the car was 90 seconds. Wow. Yeah. And uh, what happened? Like how badly burned were you? Uh, 
My injuries were 43% of my body, uh, fourth degree burns to my neck, head, and face, which was a term I'd never heard. I thought third degree was the worst you could have. Fourth degree means it's down to the last layers of muscle into the bone. My shoulders to my hands were third degree, and the tops of my thighs. My chest, my stomach, my back don't have a mark on them uh, because of my bulletproof vest, which I ultimately credit with saved my life. If my chest been burned, anything, like my arms and face, I would have died within just a couple minutes. The way burns work, they, burns will keep on burning. And you end up, you know, when somebody gets a bad chest burn, it's just like a brick being stacked one after another on your chest until eventually your lungs can't expand and you, and you basically suffocate. So I didn't have that. And outside of the burns, I had two cracked ribs and a mild concussion. I mean, at that ridiculous of an accident yeah, and speed, that car doesn't catch on fire. I'd have gone home just a few hours later. And to back up, another ironic part, the cab had a passenger in the backseat of his car. Oh, my who, word. Who had just gotten released from jail and called a cab to get a ride home. I know. it's. <laughs> listen, wow. Autumn, you're free to laugh at any point because some of this is kind of funny. You can't even make this up. You, you just can't make that up. <laughs> This guy gets ejected from the back seat all the way through the front windshield, and he also survived, as well as the driver of the car. Uh, they pulled me out, though. The ambulance pulled me pulled up right. My body never even touched the ground. I just They body surfed me, uh, passed me hand-to-hand right into the gurney, and then two paramedics went to work on trying to find a place for an IV, and where my accident was, I was two and a half miles away from what I'm going to argue with anybody is the best burn center in the United States of Maricopa County Hospital. They're just unreal. Wow. Uh, they're the second busiest in the country next to Atlanta, but just amazing. And I was there in under eight minutes. Wow. Start to finish. Yeah. Wow. It's, it's so interesting because so like I'm, I'm a pretty spiritual person. And so and like, I really don't believe in coincidences. And it's just really interesting how this all lined up. Um, I just, I want to talk about that, but I want to go back for a minute. This is because I really have no idea. Why did your, based on that impact, do you know why exactly your car just like exploded into flames? Yes. So I was driving a Ford Crown Victoria, uh, 1996 at the time. And I didn't really pay attention we were kind of ground zero. There were a lot of these accidents across the country. And here in Arizona, we've had four. In 1998 and 2000, we lost two state troopers. And just like me, hardly any injuries, just burned to death. And then a year after my accident, we lost a Chandler police officer. I think currently about 33 officers. Ford does not make the car anymore, and there's been a lot of retrofits. But the Ford Crown Victoria, the way it's designed, they put the gas tank behind the rear axle. So when you are hit from behind, it has nowhere to, it's no, no protection. And I've even held my gas tank. You know, gas tanks are, they're huge. Um, I've held it in my hand and all I have is a, a dime sized hole in it from a bolt that punctured it. But with that kind of impact and the metal hitting together, it didn't take much to ignite that crazy inferno so uh that but that was the deal with the cars and i did a lot of work a lot of advocacy over the years to get these cars i bet you did to fight against ford and 
they have slowly over time uh, come to an end. Wow. And so have you, have you, you must have, you must have talked to some of the people that were on the scene that night. I can't tell you how often and at great length because I was always so, you know, proud of them, so thankful, so grateful. But I also wanted to know. I mean, even to this day, I don't live too far away from the intersection. And when I travel around the valley to meetings and stuff, I often find myself there. And if I get stopped at a red light, I actually get a little bit excited because I can sit there and try to soak in the scene. I mean, I've seen all the pictures there from the accident all the way to my most graphic medical, but I have talked to those people at length and I still stay in touch with two of the firefighters on a very regular basis. And it's been neat to see how profoundly it, it affected their life. And when they see me today, how healthy and happy I am, my family. And uh, I always want to let them know, Hey, you know what? It, it was, uh, it was worth it. what you went through that night. was definitely worth it. Wow. And so, yeah, I wonder how they're doing. Like, like how, how are they doing mentally? Cause I mean, that's a lot of trauma for, you know, a first for you. And now I want to talk about that, but I'm just interested to hear about how the people who, you know, were there with you, especially the ones that knew you, like, how did, how are they doing? Well, they're doing great now. I mean, uh, the first couple of years was rough and everybody of course took a different path. You know, they, you had people of different ages. Um, the engineer was a woman. She so had a different gender and she was a little closer to retirement. Had been doing it for a long time. She's, she's the one I stay in the closest contact with mm-hmm. the young rookie. Uh, this is what drives me crazy about our profession. I mean, it's all right to, to have some morbid sense of humor. You need that sometimes and jokes are fine and stuff. But after that call, he was always known as the guy who overslept the alarm. That's the only reason they were in the intersection. He overslept the alarm by 45 seconds. If he doesn't do that, I'm not here. Wow. But it affected him so bad that he left the city of Phoenix. And I've heard that he's an LA County, Los Angeles County firefighter. I've tried to get a hold of him and I don't think he wants, uh, I just think he wants to forget about that part. And then the captain on the crew he retired a few years later, and then he went through something much worse. His son was murdered. Ugh. And so he's, uh, he's kind of fallen off uh, the grid and mm-hmm. retreated a little bit, as I, can, I can't fathom what he's gone through. Um, the officer who cut my seatbelt, he's now a pig farmer in Wisconsin and loving life. Wow. And the other officer who crawled into the car is he transferred over to our state trooper department of public safety and he's a SWAT officer right now. Wow. So everybody took a little different path, but when I talk to them, you know, they're doing great. Their families are doing great. And we can talk about it. Uh, sometimes we joke, mm-hmm. um, you know, depending on the, the situation um, or sometimes we'll go back and talk in, in great detail and just relive it together. Uh, mm. I mean, maybe on the anniversary, like go to lunch or something like that. And, um, it, it's very therapeutic. And has that's, 
That's what I was going to say. Like maybe connecting now might be pretty therapeutic. What did, so I'd love to hear about your agency. How supportive have they been to you and how supportive were they to the officers that were involved? Yeah, I'm very blessed. Phoenix, uh, I have nothing but wonderful things to say about them from start to finish. They, they started immediately. I mean, my best friend, my partner, you know, he did not know it was me and he happened to intercept the ambulance and he followed it in and he thought it was me because he couldn't get a hold of me. I'm not answering the police computer. I'm not answering my cell phone. And when they, he watched them pull me off on the gurney, he actually looked at me and said, thank God that's not Jason. Cause I was completely looked nothing like me. You know what I mean? I was charred burns from the neck up and, but then he was faced with an incredible set of circumstances. He's the one who had to go wake my wife up in the middle of the night and completely change her life forever. Meanwhile, knowing by the time he got back to the hospital that I'd be dead, they had my other best friend. He was in a different precinct. They immediately transferred him to our precinct. They assigned these two guys to my family, took them off the streets, gave them city cell phones, unmarked cars, said all you do is take care of Jason's family, take his mom to the grocery store, babysit his kids, cut his grass. I don't care. Do not come back to work. Just take care of his family. Then they put a giant RV outside of the hospital where my family could go and, you know, have a cup of coffee, sit together, not have to deal with the media, not have to deal with the waiting room and stuff like that. And then my chief at the time, it was a gentleman named Harold Hurt. And he later went on to be the chief in Houston and long since retired. But uh, I'm kind of jumping ahead, but I was in a coma for a very long time. And when I woke up, I was blind. And it was not possible to wrap my mind around what I'm being told. And I couldn't figure out a lot of, like, why I can't I open my eyes. I didn't realize I was blind. And uh, I didn't realize I had lost half my fingers. I didn't realize I weighed you know, now about 120 pounds at six foot three. I was 200 pounds of solid muscle when I got in my accident and I've lost like 80 pounds because I'm not being fed. I'm just laying there, been in a coma for two and a half months. Wow. So my biggest fear at the time, the thing that I cried over every day, uh, number one was my kids thinking about what are they going to think of me? They did not deserve this. But the other thing was I've lost my job. And my chief came in one day, and of course I can't see, and he simply said, uh, Jason, this is Chief Hurt. And he said, in one hand, I have your oath of office. In the other hand, I have your badge, and I'm going to leave them here in the room so that you know that you're going to be a Phoenix police officer as long as you choose, not as long as you choose. And that helped me so much, because I've heard horror stories over the years from officers uh, at other agencies where, you know, they get hurt and if they can't make it back in say a year, they're just completely cut out. They're gone. Yep. And that is, that devastates people mentally, emotionally. I don't know what it would have done to me. I was able to fight and get back to work and wow. do, and do a dream job. I was able to do a lot. So yeah, the city of Phoenix, they're amazing. And I've seen it countless times with officers who have been uh, shot, uh, and survived terribly injured 
and the, the department stands by them very well. That's amazing, Jason. Yeah. So, I mean, just to hear that, um, I have an officer who is a client of mine and he, unfortunately, he had to undergo um, a full lung transplant. And I mean, literally this, yeah, this guy's like the strongest, one of the strongest people I know, truly. And he, and he went through it, I think in just a couple of months ago when he's, he's back home, he's still working through it. But unfortunately his agency only gave him a year. Like if you can't get back on the road in a year and, and I just, I can't understand that. I mean, this, 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 this is completely out of this gentleman's hands, like completely. And he's doing the best that he can. And he's like, I'm, I'm fighting every day and I'm going to get back. But it's like, what the hell, you know? Yeah. I mean, I, in some ways, I guess I understand like smaller agencies. If you've got 20 officers, it's hard to replace if you're missing. At the time, Phoenix, we had over 3,000 people missing one and giving me a little bit of time, but it's still, if you get hurt in the line of duty or, or your agency has got to stand by you, the administrators all the way up to the chief, that's the, they should never forget why they signed up in the first place on, on their application. They can't have forgotten going through the academy and being a rookie and being on the streets and then to, to rise up to where you're making those decisions and you can hurt somebody. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and that's what I teach at the academy is victimology and it's about how not to re-victimize somebody. And that's what agencies do a lot to officers. And I think the same thing of what I, I, one job I definitely could not do is dispatch. There's no way. There's too, much going on. There's too much going on and stuff that you have to listen to. And then when you're on the other end, uh, you, you know, when you're a dispatcher, you're sitting in your office and then you're dealing with something like a critical incident or an officer involved shooting or, you know, what we call a 999, an officer down, um, you don't, you don't just go on to the next call and like, or come back the next day, like, okay, it's a new day. That's, that's just not how we work. We're human beings. And uh, you don't want to be harmed any further than the initial one was. So. 100%. No. And so tell us, so you got injured, uh, obviously, <laughs> and you, so you're so you're in that you go to the hospital and they think that you're gonna die. Like that was 100%. what it was. One hundred percent. Doctors told my family. Uh, my best friend did an incredible job. He got my my brother was a big police officer at the time, uh, but he had he's a lot older than me and he had a lot more time on. Um, but my buddy Brian got uh, he got my wife. He got. Uh, my brother, my sister, my parents, my priest was brought in to give me last rites, and he got them all down there in about an hour. And the doctor, the chief of the burn center, who his name was Dan Caruso. Unfortunately, this guy, he died a couple of years ago of cancer at 53 years old. The greatest healer in life ever, ever. His license plate said top doc because he was always there. Uh, like county hospital, the burn center, even when cops would get get shot here, that's where they go because the doctors are just the best. And mm. he saved lives of people who had their being a cava completely shot and were should have bled out in minutes. Wow. He saved so many lives. Um, but he told my family very bluntly. He said, I've never seen burns like this to somebody's head and face and Jason is not 
going to live. But I have to get him into surgery. I got to get all of that dead bacteria filled tissue off. And he placed me into a medically induced coma just to keep me quiet and pain free. And yeah, within, within a, again, like I mentioned earlier, burns will keep on burning. So you've got to get in there quick. And they had me in surgery. And after about seven hours, I was, I was down to, down to nothing. And my appearance was forever erased, but yeah, they didn't expect me to live. And then the days just kept clicking by and I would go through surgeries. I would go through a lot of tissue donors. Uh, you know, that whole gift of life being an organ and tissue donor, that's not just a, that's just not three words. I mean, it, it means something. I had dozens that helped mm. me uh, fight the infections of, of being exposed in that way. And uh, finally, they came to a point where they said, all right, well, we think he's going to make it. Uh, but how, how did we get there, though? So, like, so you, they put you in a coma, and the plan was, we'll just see if he makes it? Uh, the plan was to, well, at first, just get all of the, the burns off. Mm-hmm. And that's when they expected me to, uh, thankfully, I, because I was knocked unconscious, I wasn't in the midst of that fear and chaos. I wasn't, I didn't have that heavy breathing or screaming. Mm-hmm. I wasn't mm-hmm. sucking in all that smoke. Mm-hmm. So my lungs and everything were, were spared. That helped me. I was 28 years old. I was in great shape. And as they were doing the skin grafts, you know, with burn survivors, a lot of times, five, six, seven weeks, then you succumb to your injuries because infections are just impossible to battle against. And being in a hospital, you're going to get infections. I mean, mm-hmm. I had pneumonia several times. I had staph infections. And I, I, don't, I can't really explain it. I just kept getting past them. And wow. finally, they decided to wake me up from the coma. And How long? How long were you in a coma? Two and a half months. Two and a half months. Wow. And it, it was because it was medically induced. It was the blink of an eye. I mean, when I woke up, I knew right away I was in the hospital. Just there was a certain sound, smell. I'd been in enough hospitals on enough mm-hmm. calls. I'm like, why am I in the hospital? Why can't I see? Why can't I move? I was just at work. I mean, there was mm-hmm. a thousand thoughts pouring into my mind. Mm-hmm. And my wife was in the room with me. And I'll never forget how calm and strong her voice was. She told me right away that I'd been in a car accident. And uh, knowing I was just at work and I'm a cop, I asked her if it was my fault. And she said, no, so I felt a little better. <laughs> and, uh, and then I was like, well, when was it? it was three hours ago, last night, I was doctor unconscious. What, what's going on? And of course, I'm saying this now with a pretty clear, strong voice. I could barely talk back then, but I didn't realize that. I had a trach in helping mm-hmm. me breathe. So my voice was incredibly raspy and quiet after not speaking for two months. But in my memory, I was talking like I was today. And, um, and then that's when she told me that my car had caught on, caught on fire. And I stopped her and I said, don't say another word to me. Uh, the, the only thing that I've ever been scared of in life is fire. Uh, I mean, to the point that I have never, as a child, as an adult, my family and I have never owned or cooked on gas barbecue grills. I don't buy real Christmas trees. Absolutely.
absolutely the one thing that I prayed would never happen. And here I'm being told without warning, it did, knowing it was a car accident and not being able to really comprehend. I wasn't in any pain at the time because of medication. So I thought, well, okay, my legs were burned. But I was still just so devastated by that, that that's when I started down the path of emotions that, you know, looking back, not only is it normal for us to go through, but it is absolutely required. You can't just simply say, okay, to something like this. So, you know, I'm crying every day. I've got two kids at home, a seven-year-old daughter, a son who turned three when I was in my coma. Wow. And... So I'm crying, worried about them. I've lost my job. There are days of people even dared walk into my room. They got yelled at, cussed at, and there are days they won't talk. And it went that way for about three weeks of this internal journey that I had to go on uh, until I had um, my realization of, of where I was and what I needed to do. Wow. And so can I ask you, how did you work through that trauma and all those emotions? I can't explain why exactly this occurred to me, but I was laying in bed uh, again, about three weeks after, and it was middle of the night, all alone, no visitors, completely blind, just alone with your thoughts. And I had two profound realizations that uh, started the, the to lay the foundation of, of moving forward. And the first one was the taxi driver. I considered myself, there's so much to this. First of all, he, he was having a seizure and it was medical related, but it was learned during the investigation that he had caused four other accidents prior to mine. He lied on two of his MVD application stating he did not have a medical condition and they were able to prove for six years leading up to our crash he was not taking his medication so now in the eyes of the law he was arrested charged with ag assault against a police officer ag assault against his pastor and he was sitting in jail but for me I knew that he was not out to hurt a police officer he certainly wasn't out to hurt Jason he had made a lot of very bad decisions over a long period of time that led him to that intersection. Mm-hmm. I thought that I had made a lot of very good choices over many years of my life that led me to that intersection. And that transitioned me into being very open to wanting to have and to accept accountability. Mm. It would be very easy, especially as a first responder, to say, why me? I was minding my business. I was serving my community. But I'm the one who chose to be a police officer. Mm-hmm. I'm the one who chose to answer up for a call that I had no business answering up for. Mm-hmm. The, the route that I was taking, I chose to drive down that. And the timing of everything that took place from the start of my shift at 3 p.m. that day till that accident at 11.30 p.m., I made a lot of decisions of where I went, what time I left, that caused the ability for that 
split second moment in time to take place. It, it, nothing is just instantaneous. Mm -hmm. And when I was able to recognize, okay, you, you are not a victim of this. You are a product of Boom. your own choices. Boom. And life is all about choice. Mm -hmm. And when you, I'll I tell you what, when you can, when you can have accountability, it is amazing the strength that you can draw from that. And so that was the night that I said, you know, I don't know what I'm going to be able to accomplish, but I'm at least ready to put up a fight. And the next day I asked the doctors, when can I go home? And this was the end of June. And the doctor said, well, you know, we're figuring about six more months, you're going to be here till Christmas. And so I did everything they wanted me to do, surgery, therapy. How many I, surgeries? Uh, well, at the time, I had probably gone through roughly 17. Uh, currently, I've had 56. But to put, that into, to put that into perspective, I haven't had surgery since 2008. Wow. So those 56 surgeries were in a, uh, you know, a, a six-year, seven-year window of time. But six months, I'm like, you, no, I, I, there's no way I'm laying in this bed and drinking this nasty insure and you guys are crazy. <laughs> I'm getting out of here. Mm -hmm. And I did everything they wanted me to do. They took good care of me. And I walked out of that hospital on July 31st. Holy cow. Yeah. What do you think? So you just think your mindset changed? Completely. And mindset is, is everything. Also, though, don't forget I had a tremendous amount of support. I've got a wife who didn't leave me. I've got two kids. And when you're nothing, nothing in this world means more to me than fatherhood. And when you have, I'm like, I, they still have a dad. I'm still their dad. And they did not ask for this. They didn't deserve it. And I'm going to make it better. I had the support of my friends. And I recognized that all those months that I was in a coma, two and a half months, they all stuck around. They were there. So who am I to not at least fight for them and, mm -hmm. and honor, honor what they went through? So that had a lot to do with pushing me forward. But I can tell you, when I got out of the hospital, I had to go to therapy for about three weeks because I was like an infant. I mean, I didn't know how to eat, talk. Lost half my fingers amputation. I'm completely blind. So ridiculously thin and frail. So I went to rehab, and they expected me to be there for three to four months. I was there for three weeks. And finally, on August 17th, I went home for good. Um, but I can tell you that was when the, uh, you know, I thought being in the hospital was tough. Uh, when you're surrounded by professionals taking care of you, and you can just selfishly lay there and think about yourself. Mm -hmm. That's one thing. Get home, and all of a sudden you're not the you're not the man of the house. You're not the husband, the father, the member of society that you used to be. That was when the mental and emotional adversity really got me. And, How'd you overcome that? Well, I mean, you know, it, it. I went through some some pretty rough patches. I got home in August, and all the way at Thanksgiving, the the local news was doing a story on my family and I still couldn't see myself. So I was not ready to put my face on camera because uh, I didn't even know what I looked like, but I knew it wasn't good. And they put up an old picture of me 
and my son, Zane, who had turned three when I was in my accident, uh, I remember him saying, that's my dad. And I said, yeah, buddy, that's me. And he said, you're not my dad. That's my dad. When you're a father and you hear those words, I mean, everybody has their own rock bottom. That was without a doubt my rock bottom. But the good thing about rock bottom, you go any lower. You go There's sideways. only one more. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I mean, you can walk sideways a couple of times, but otherwise it's just up. And in kids are resilient. They, he was able to, a few months later around Christmas, he overcame, uh, he figured out, and he doesn't even have a memory of it now. He's 22 years old and just the most amazing person God ever put on this planet. And my daughter did so well. She was seven at the time. But, you know, once positive momentum gets going, you just have to be smart enough to get the hell out of the way. Mm. And every time I went to therapy and came home, I got a little bit stronger. Every time I had surgery, something got a little bit better. And then I had, you know, I had, again, the luck and the honor of being in uniform. So I got to do things like I carried the Olympic torch in January of 02. My wife and I, I threw out the first pitch at a baseball game. So did my daughter, uh, the D-back. And then in October of 02, 18 months after the accident, we had our third child who shouldn't even be here. Wow. That, was, that was when the, I finally got the perspective that I truly needed because when I got him home from the hospital, I was able to understand it wasn't about getting me out of a car. It wasn't about getting me through one or two surgeries. The, the efforts that those firefighters, police officers, like doctors, again, this is an entire life. It's mm-hmm. been great. And now if he grows up, his name is Mason. He's 17 now. If he grows up and has three or four kids, and then they grow up and have three or four kids, we're talking about something that, can go on and on with no logical end and right. that, that was really the the final like uh you know what i'm i'm gonna be okay and two weeks two weeks after mason was born uh on november 12 2002 18 months after the accident i got into a truck by myself and i drove back to work wow awesome it was an awesome day I was, let me tell you, I was scared driving down down the road because my eyesight still wasn't. The doctors had done a lot of crazy things to try and restore some of my eyesight. And uh, I still remember that drive uh, very well, but uh, I was so excited. And to walk back into the headquarters, I started out as a public information officer. And then I ended up, uh, I was detective certified. I ended up being a homicide detective. And it was something that I had dreamt of it was a goal it's an it is it is a very humbling and honorable job to speak for victims mm. who can't speak for themselves or work with families that are affected by that kind of you know to be there when you're making those next to kin notifications on suicides or whatever and uh, i mean i had my tough days it's not easy when you deal with children it's not easy i i went to the autopsy of a couple of police officers and it's one thing to go to an autopsy of like a, a gangbanger or, you know, something like that. Going to the autopsy of a cop 
uh, I mean, I had some emotional days, but uh, the job was always so much bigger and so much more important mm. than what I was going through. And that propelled me forward. So it was just nonstop, one thing after another, the momentum just kept going, kept going, kept going um, until I finally decided that it needed to, uh, my career, that is, needed to uh, come to an end, that I wasn't going to be able to do the job the way that I wanted to. Uh, you know, I wasn't able to qualify with my gun again. I got to where I could shoot it. I could load, unload. I was hitting the target, but I couldn't do it in the time that's required. And there's some very good reasons why those time requirements are in place. So while I was proud of what I had accomplished, it was, you know, just realistic that I was going to be on light duty. Then mm-hmm. I was you know, working in homicide. Sometimes you work 48 straight hours or more. And mm-hmm that took its toll and I realized, you know, you probably shouldn't waste this second chance. And, you know, I had a dream of being a police officer. I achieved that. And when you get to do your dream, even for a brief time, that can never be taken away from you. And so when I walked away, which was August of 06, five and a half years after the accident, uh, I uh, never regretted a day of it. Not at all. Yeah, I, I August uh, August of two thousand six, five and a half years. I uh, took a medical retirement. Wow, y- y- your tenacity is so inspiring because so many of us would just not be like you. You know, I mean, I'm just being honest. There's so many people that would have just been like, okay, well, so this is just my life now, and and I'm not gonna fight to get back to work, and I'm not gonna fight to freaking you know, leave before Christmas when the doctor says you're definitely here until Christmas. And, you you know, you, you're just so inspirational. Um, You know what? I just want to know, like, you were never afraid to go back. See, I feel like I would be a little nervous to go back to work. That was the opposite for you. You were like, let's go. I'm doing this. I have, I have to go back to work. It's, it's not a paycheck. It's not to get some good benefits. It's not a 40 hour week job. It was who I was every day and even after all these years mm-hmm. i still consider myself a phoenix police officer i mean it's just uh it it it, it was a calling i did it for the right reasons something yeah. i'm very proud of yeah and uh i know why i put my name on that application and don't get me wrong listen i've had a tremendous amount of dark days mm-hmm. no i still do i still have plenty of adversity uh i still have plenty of demons that i have to fight and you know, I'm very healthy and smiling right now, but you got to understand I'm, I'm 2% of the success that I am. I, I again, the, the, the strength that my wife showed in standing by me, having another child, seeing where all three of my kids are now and how it has made them better. Yeah. Um, that those are the things that really, you know, I, I, as an example, I've been invited several times to go speak at the burn center in San Antonio, which is where the military guys go. I used to be at Walter Reed in DC. And I would try to explain to people, listen, I was 28 years old with a great career, a beautiful wife, two kids. I cannot walk into the hospital room of a 19 year old who's been blown up in Afghanistan and tell him, 
hey, you're going to be okay. Don't worry about it. I, I, I can't do that. I was in a unique position of being, for, for something like this to happen, hmm. it, it could not have happened at a better time because I was at a, a place in life where I had already achieved everything that I needed to overcome the adversity. And, mm. uh, you know, there were days I, I never really wanted to give up. I often thought, you know, it would have been really easy to die that night because I didn't feel it. No fear, no pain. Whereas what I was going through wasn't easy, but I never wished that I was dead. And uh, just continuing over the years, all these years later now, again, to, to do what I'm doing now with my public speaking, uh, traveling the country and to see where my family is right now mm-hmm. is, uh, it, it's just absolutely incredible. Amazing. So tell us what you do now. Like what are you up to nowadays? Well, after I retired, I, uh, I got back to playing golf, uh, <laughs> because it's something I love to do. And I actually got to where I could play just as good as before with my deformed hands and I mean they're not good but I went through a lot of surgery and a lot of therapy to get to where I could shoot a gun again and I played golf for I think long enough to where my wife finally was like hey maybe you should get a job and get the hell out of the house <laughs> uh, and I went into business for myself doing non-emergency medical transportation and then in 2010 I gave a you know I didn't really know how to tell my story I didn't I know anything about being a public speaker and uh, stuff like that. And uh, but my story is kind of easy because I'm just sharing from my heart. I'm showing pictures. I'm bragging about my family or the doctors or the firefighters, whatever. Yeah. I gave, I gave this speech in 2010, and a New York firefighter was there, and he came up to me afterwards uh, with tears in his eyes, and he said. Jason, I was at 9-11. I lost a bunch of my friends. And I'm currently going through a divorce. And you changed my life today. That was my other aha moment. And I called my business partner. I said, "Uh, I'm selling my portion of the company. Mm -hmm. I know what I I need to do. And I set out about learning how to be a public speaker. And over the years, it uh, has built up and built up and uh, things were going great until this awesome little disease that I can't see yep. and all my speeches uh, uh, have kind of gone out the window and they'll probably be the last thing that comes back putting 500 people in an auditorium that's going to be a while but I did 75 of them last year and wow. uh, travel all over the country got a, got a car got a uh, check into a hotel, got to go to a restaurant. And uh, I decided, you know what? You got to do this alone. You got to travel by yourself. You got to let people stare at you. You got to, you got to check into hotels. You got to feed yourself. You got to do this. And the first trip I took was incredibly difficult and scary. But even to this day, when I go somewhere and the wheels touch down at Phoenix Sky Harbor Airport, I feel so strong and so inspired that, uh, and I have such a sense of purpose. You know, if people do stare at me, 
uh, I know why I'm doing what I'm doing, where I'm going, and what I'm, the impact I'm trying to make on other people, whether it be first responders or whether it be a group of plumbers or real estate agents. I don't care. I just want to, uh, you know, talk about overcoming adversity and mindset and choices and accountability. And uh, so that's what I do, and I hope to do it. I'm 47 years old. I hope to do it for uh, a very long time. I love it. Do you think that that's the blessing that happened within this situation? What do you mean? The ble- uh, the, of what I get to do now? Yeah. Or like, what do you think the blessing is? Well, I think there's a lot of blessings. I think number one, it made the two kids that I had at the time, it made them better people. I mean, my daughter right now, uh, she's 26. She lives in Texas. She's married. And she's finishing up her uh, psychology degree. And all she wants to do is work with kids that are affected by trauma like she went through as a kid. So she's taking her adversity and spinning in 180 degrees to shine a beautiful light on this world. And she's an incredible young lady. My uh, 22-year-old son who, and he grew up with a lot of adversity, uh, an eating disorder, a lot of anxiety. And he graduated college this year. And he's going to be doing hotel management in New York City. Wow. And they open up again. And then I have my youngest who, again, he shouldn't be here. And he's a, he's a really good baseball player, a good student. And right now we're going through the college. That's why I was in Georgia last week for nine days. Uh, he's trying to get recruited. Uh, go play college baseball. And so Amazing. The, the kids are better for what happened. Um, mm. I think I'm the, I laugh a lot more. Um, I, I view life in a lot, a lot better way. I don't take things um, for granted. I mean, I do in some ways, but uh, for the most part, I'm, uh, I'm just appreciative and humbled by every day. I'm grateful for it. Um, but I don't feel, I don't remember the other Jason. I mean, no. I feel a lot different anyway, 20 years ago. Yeah, yeah. Uh, even though, you know, sometimes I wonder, like I look at my friend, my best friend I talked about earlier, Brian, he's now a commander with Phoenix Police Department. I mean, he rose up, had a great career. My other buddy is a recruit training officer at the academy. And, you know, I'll look at them, their hair, hair starting to turn gray. And, uh, you know, I often wonder, what would you look like at this age? Would you, would you be a homicide detective? Where would you be? But those those are fun like daydreams, but they don't make me sad or have any regret. Uh, I really do love being a public speaker. I mean, I love standing on stage. It's kind of ridiculous. Uh, I get, I get, I get really excited when it's time to go up there and, and, uh, and do my presentation. So, you know, I love your perspective. Um, and I have to ask you this because like I said, I'm, I'm like, we'll get into kind of spirituality and stuff. Did you have any experiences? Like you were in a coma, you know, you almost died. You know, no. I, and the medicine they were using, I think that was a big part of it. it that's why it was the blink of an eye. I do have a faint memory of, of being, they say when you're in a fire uh, that it's, almost like being run over by a locomotive. That's how loud it is. And I remember coming to and, and, and being in complete darkness and seeing 
like firefighter standing next to me, but I don't know if that was a weird dream I had or if I actually was regaining consciousness. And then I remember violently throwing up and my buddy Brian told me later that when I got to the hospital, they were, I wasn't breathing. So they intubated me and we had just eaten dinner. So guess what happens when we intubate? <laughs> I, uh, that dinner didn't stay down there. So I had those, but no, I didn't. I never had my, I'm a very spiritual person as well, but I do believe very strongly in, you know, I've had a lot of people over the years talk about, you know, either God chose you for this or he knew you could handle it. And the problem I have with that, yeah. there are at least 33 officers and countless civilians who died in these Ford Crown Vic fires and they did not have a fire truck in their intersection. And the God that I believe in, I don't think that he was like, you know what? I'll do this to Jason. And I don't think he had his back turned. It was like, uh Oh, what just happened? I got to get him out of there. I think mm -hmm. one of the biggest blessings in life is that we get to live of our own free will and our own free choices. Mm -hmm. It's up to us to, to do what we do. And we are free to make our own choices. And that's a beautiful blessing, but mm -hmm. we're not free from the consequences of those choices. And so the spiritual side of me tells me that to have the accountability and to have the peace and serenity that comes with that. Mm -hmm. So I never, I was never angry at God. I never questioned God. I never, you know, I mean, I've said countless prayers. I've said, you know, countless thank yous, you know, having my son, letting my kids be safe, things mm -hmm. like that. But mm -hmm. it still for me boils down to the choices that we make in life, and um, it's, it's an incredible feeling. You know, I, I search every day for those two feelings, peace and serenity. They're not easy to find. We, we don't feel those very often. Like, life tends to get in the way, you know what I mean? You got, yeah. you got stuff to do, you got stuff going on, and you're going to be stressed, you're going to feel anxious, you're going to feel anger and shed tears. I mean, it would be great if we could just feel love and joy and success and enthusiasm, but we're human beings and the spectrum of emotions that we can feel. Mm -hmm. And so I embrace those too. I mean, on my bad days, mm -hmm. when I am angry, when I am shedding tears over something or when I'm so incredibly anxious about, you know, my eyesight is starting to fail after all these years now. And, uh, you know, I don't want to be blind again. It was the most claustrophobic, terrifying thing I ever went through. I don't want that to happen again, but when I feel these things, I, I will embrace those just as much as I embrace the days that I'm laughing and feeling loved and, and things like that. And it, it keeps me on a very even keel. Love it. What do you want to leave Sheepdog Nation with? Is there anything that you'd like to say before I open it up to my mastermind? Uh, yep. It's written right here. Sometimes the most beautiful inspirational changes will disguise themselves as utter devastation. Be patient. Mm. Be patient in your struggle. Be patient in your grief. 
Life truly is 10% what happens to you. It's 90% how you react to it. And you, of, of the few things that we're in control of, you are in control of your mindset and your attitude. You're not going to win every battle, but if you keep fighting with your better angels, if you keep just trying to move forward, uh, you're, going to, you're going to get there. There's absolutely nothing you can't overcome as long as you're still alive and have the chance. Amazing. Thank you so much, Jason. And how do people find you on the socials? Uh, it is very easy, uh, with the exception of how difficult my last name is to spell. Um, uh, I'm on uh, Twitter and Instagram all the time, and it's uh, at Schechterly underscore Jace, J-A-S. And uh, my book is titled Burning Shield. It's uh, available on Amazon. My website is Burning Shield. My email address is on there. I'm the only one who gets my emails. Um, and uh, just type my name into Google. Uh, it, it even makes me laugh, like all the stuff that comes up. <laughs> so um, I'm pretty easy to get a hold of. And is it burningshield.com? It is burningshield.com. Wonderful. We'll have that in the show notes. Um, Sheepdog Nation, this has been an amazing episode. Go back and re-listen to it because we can all learn something from Jason. We will see you next time. They buried me in the water and I came, I knew. <laughs> now I'm baptized in blue. I'm a I'm a never quit. I refuse to lose. I got heart and I got crazy. I'm a warrior that's been baptized in blue. I'm a warrior that's been baptized in blue. I'm a fighter. To understand what I do, only the thin blue line, cause they baptized in blue. Oh, I'm a fighter, I'm a winner, never quit. I refuse to lose. I got heart and I got crazy. I'm a warrior that's been baptized in blue. I'm a warrior that's been baptized in blue. I'm a fighter. But it could have been I What about the kids? Uh, what about the spouse? Yeah, now who gon' put food inside them babies' mouth? 
It's a bigger picture when I officer down Domino effect, blue nation, family, country, and town The media don't cover us, huh. Well, maybe Fox, cause MSNBC and CNN Surely don't care about cops, politicians More concerned about protecting the legal Instead of laying the law down And protecting the people, let me get off my soapbox Before I curse, I don't see way too many cops Riding in hearse, well I wouldn't expect you to understand What I do, only the thin blue light Cause they baptized in blue, uh I'm a fighter, I'm a winner, never quit I refuse to lose I got heart and I got crazy, I'm a warrior Just been baptized in blue, I'm a warrior Just been baptized in blue I'm a fighter I'm gonna complete it if that means being deleted. I live with the credence. I do this for the combat vets and LEOs when I'm suited, ready to go. It's either friend or foe. Only Lord knows what my future's in store. I only kill with the hope to see more. So God don't close that door. If I take a life, it's him or me. With the host to survive, not be a good tree I go in situations that you cannot imagine Deal with things that you cannot fathom No it's buts or rather I'd rather fight for cause than live for nothing So when you read my headstone You know I died for something You hypersensitive, she complain by justified force You blame the cops first That don't work, you blame the courts But I wouldn't expect you to understand What I do, only the thin blue line Cause they baptized in blue oh, I'm a fighter I'm a warrior, just been baptized in blue, I'm a warrior.